Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea welcoming you to another episode of Tall Poppies, the podcast presenting Australian luminaries from around the world. Thank you for your many emails these last months. I hope you are all managing to stay safe as the world continues to face the various challenges this pandemic presents us with. As you can well imagine, the current world situation has slowed production of this series somewhat, as it's been difficult to access interview partners and studios. However, I will be continuing to produce these podcasts, so do keep an ear out for new episodes. Once again, special thanks to the podcast sponsors. Your financial contributions make it possible for this project to continue. For those of you who might be considering sponsoring the podcast, thereby allowing me to continue my research, interviewing production and maintaining this living archive, do drop by the Tall Poppies website. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com. And here's a direct link to the Patreon page, which makes donating to this project easy. That's www.patreon.com backslash Tall Poppies Talk. And Tall Poppies Talk is written as one word. The danger is the longer I'm away from Australia, the more I, I idealise the place or create a kind of fiction about it. You know, start when it gets cold in November, I start to think, oh, I really miss my um, apartment looking over Bondi Beach and then I realise I don't have an apartment looking over Bondi Beach <laughs> um, and I started to imagine this life that I never had and would never have there. One of the greatest things I ever did was playing with Berlin Philharmonic in Sydney yeah. and before that I went for a swim at Bondi Beach <laughs> I went directly to the hall and to still you know have the smell of the sea on you as you're playing a Mahler symphony yeah. I mean for me that's that's a dream yeah. That's Matthew McDonald. The Canberra-born musician is today the principal double bass of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Matthew started out his musical career as a violinist, but already at a very early age became fascinated with the bass. So much so that one Christmas his parents gave him an electric bass, but it came with a proviso and that was that he should also learn to play the acoustic double bass. Well, Matthew quickly fell in love with the huge instrument's dark, mellow sound. He began his studies with Max McBride at the Canberra School of Music, later continuing with Keith Borsma in Sydney. In the year 2000, he took up a scholarship at the Berlin Philharmonics Orchestra Academy, and soon after, he was engaged as principal bass of the Danish National Orchestra. From there, engagements followed as principal bass of the Ensemble Moderne and with Berlin's Rundfunk Symphony Orchestra and Deutsche Symphony Orchestra before he became principal bass of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Now, that orchestra, like music ensembles around the world, is slowly returning to the stage, having had its performances and tours cancelled over the last period due to the pandemic. The lockdown, I think... For a lot of us, a few weeks in, you start to almost doubt if you can do it anymore. You crave it. And it was so unsure, we didn't know when we'd have to play again. Today, Matthew McDonald has settled with his family in Berlin, and indeed, it was between one of those many lockdowns in 2020 that I caught up with this rather exceptional musician. 
Matthew McDonald. Lovely to finally meet you and thanks for coming on the podcast. It would seem the double bass actually found you rather than you setting out to find it. Would I be right in saying that? Yes, I... Um well, I'd been kind of forced to play violin when I was a little kid, and I, I liked it then, going to the Suzuki classes. But we moved around a lot, and I changed schools frequently. And eventually I stopped playing violin, took it up again when I was 13, by which stage, no matter how many um, grunge band stickers you put on the violin case, nothing could make the violin cool. And I was... When I was about 15, we had this lunchtime string ensemble, I think on Thursdays, and the violins were divided into first violins, second violins, and third violins. <laughs> and the violin teacher said that she needed the, the strong players in third violins, and, you know, I, di I didn't believe her then. And, yeah. Um, but there was another guy in the third violin section, actually... He and I um, were the entire third violin section, and he got out his violin and played a, a little walking bass line, do 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 de, do 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 do, just plucking it. And I said, "Oh, that sounds cool." He showed me how to play it. And I said, "What is that?" And um, he said, "It's a bass line." And what I didn't know was that he was actually playing bass guitar and a bit of double bass. And he showed me his bass guitar that lunch break. And I was in love straight away and um, told my parents I wanted to play bass guitar. And they said, on the condition that I also play a real instrument, the double bass, and I was attracted to the bass as well. We, where I went to school, it stood in the corner of the basement music department. And um, you know, there is something about the size and the beauty of the double bass, just visually, that you know, it's attractive. So I agreed to that, and then I had a few lessons, and then there were summer holidays, two months, and I spent those months practicing, trying to learn how to play the bass. I was doing it incorrectly at the beginning, trying to use violin fingerings. Um, but then when I started having regular lessons, after about six months, I was playing in orchestras with double bass. I just fell in love with it and eventually forgot about the bass guitar. Um, to the extent that I had a, later on, a couple of years later, I had a pickup on my bass. And instead of playing bass guitar in rock bands, which I loved doing, I just put the distortion pedal on the double bass and played with the bow. And that was, that was great fun. Um, but it really was, I think, this quick immersion in the youth orchestra scene and Canberra School of Music, um, which really got me going very quickly on the bass. Because the thing is, just having a bass is... You've fulfilled most of the requirements <laughs> of being in an ensemble just by, yeah, just by virtue of owning one. So very quickly I was playing in all kinds of jazz bands, big bands... Um, folk groups, rock groups, orchestras, string ensembles. And it happened very, very quickly that I was just busy. My dad driving me or mum driving me around Canberra with his bass in the back. And, um, yeah, it was a very intense beginning, really. in the 80s and 90s the Canberra School of Music was one of Australia's finest mm. music institutions how was it growing up and studying there? Yes, I mean when I was there there was still the legendary um, John Painter and Lois Simpson uh, 
fantastic wind teachers. There was the uh, the um, Canberra wind quintet. Uh, wind Canberra wind solos, I think they were called. And then string teaching David Pereira. You know, right. he was one of Australia's most well-known cellists and a wonderful musician. And then there was the Canberra Symphony where all these people played and as a student I, I did my first concert with the Canberra Symphony when I was 17 and playing next to my teacher Max McBride as I'd have this chance as as a teenager to play with these kind of musicians I can't imagine many places certainly not in big cities where you would have that opportunity um, and there was then a really flourishing uh, youth orchestra scene there was a lot there was a lot going on and the camera school of music was kind of the center of the musical life in the city and to be there it it didn't feel boring at all actually you're very busy also we had many opportunities to play publicly i was just talking about this with a friend of mine the other day we used to play at this church in town i can't remember what it was where what it, which one it was I would play at the ANU lunches for the professors. Mm. We had performance classes. Australian National University, I guess, yeah. 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 There were so many opportunities to perform publicly. And I think in a way, compared to what I see in Berlin, um, where people are often battling with nerves and waiting till things are perfect, in Canberra we were really thrown in the deep end. I think it took me until I was about 20 to realize that there was probably a lot more happening elsewhere. And eventually I wanted, I was desperate to leave. In fact, I left Canberra when I was, I can't remember, 2021. 20, I was whinging to a friend of mine how much I hated Canberra and he said, well, just leave. And so I did. I got on the Murray's bus to Sydney the next day and stayed with friends for a few months and enrolled at the Sydney Con. In a way, Sydney was it was full of um, temptation, you know. In Canberra, we had one club. Okay. <laughs> in Sydney, there were a few more. <laughs> there was all that which was kind of overwhelming, but at the same time, I was I was quickly getting work with Sydney Symphony, and that was that was fantastic. I really loved playing with Sydney Symphony, and that that feeling of walking down Circular Quay to the Opera House with a, a real purpose. Was, I, I still find it one of the most amazing things, yeah. that, that walk towards Sydney Opera House. But to do it as a 21-year-old working in you know, one of Australia's best orchestras, I felt so proud and I felt so close to a career possibly working out. And I hadn't thought that much about a career until then you know Canberra was a lovely bubble you just just exploring music I hadn't even I didn't even know how it really worked how you got a job in an orchestra and then when I moved to Sydney um, I just thought gosh this is this is an incredible way to live playing an orchestra and only living doing that and then go and drink your wage as the sun sets afterwards <laughs> on the key.
it all sounds so incredibly idyllic in Sydney. It seems hard to imagine why you'd leave it all, but you did, and you came to take up a scholarship at the Carrion Academy in the year 2000, right? How prepared did you feel the work that you'd done in Sydney at the Sydney Conservatorium and in Canberra, and of course working with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, how well had all of that prepared you for your new professional life in Berlin? I think, you know, going back to Canberra and all that experience I had playing with orchestras and then having the chance to play with Sydney Symphony, I'd at least done quite a lot of orchestral work. Um, it was very different, of course, playing in Berlin Philharmonic in in so many ways. But at least I wasn't completely new to it. I don't know how someone could do it if they hadn't played a lot with orchestras first. Musically, it wasn't so much about the education in Australia. It was just that there were so many more bass players. For a little while... Um, to my shame, I was getting quite complacent in Sydney. Not so much out of arrogance, but I didn't know where it was all heading. And I was really one of very, very few bass students. And it's not like there were auditions for jobs every week. Mm. So there was a stage where I was losing direction a little bit. I didn't know which way to go anymore. I didn't know how to develop the playing any further. I didn't and it wasn't because of the teaching but I think just a vital part of learning is just to be surrounded by peers mm. other students doing it mm. and I think really most people say they learn the most from that and it was a big shock to hear how great these other bass players were there were two not just the ones there were two others in the Korean Academy but I would hear student recitals in the Hochschulen and I also listened to two auditions for the Berlin Phil, where you see 20 people that could just play, and they were all playing in a way I could never imagine. That was a huge kick up the butt, really, to get me really working. Um, also, I couldn't believe how much people practiced. I mean, when I was young, when I was starting on the bass, I practiced very much. And then, yeah, in the end, when I, I grew complacent, I wasn't practicing so much. Practicing so much. And if I did a concert with Sydney Symphony, then I'd celebrate by not practicing for a few days. And I couldn't believe it there the next morning after a Berlin Phil concert, these students were back in the practice room at 9am. And that, that was a real shock, that work, I think. Also how driven people were to get jobs. That was only, the idea was only very vaguely on my horizon at that stage. And to see people walk around with this magazine, Das Orchester, where all the jobs were and leafing through and circling. Frankfurt Opera needs a tutti bass. Dresden needs this. And that, I still feel kind of my my pulse go up thinking about that. <laughs> the idea of getting on a train somewhere and not passing first round, I found terrifying. And I resisted it for a while. In terms of social interaction, I had no idea. You know, Australia... I was thinking about the other day, it's, in a way it's opposite to Germany. Whereas when you're younger here in Germany, it's, everything is du. And then at, I think 15, Informal. 60, they, yeah. they offer you the Z. Whereas I remember it the other way around. Until I was 16, everyone was Mr. Jennings, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Pollard. And then my last years of school we were on first name basis with the teachers everyone was Paul or Mike or mm. yeah that was a big difference when I came to Berlin and I was walking up to people using their first names and to see the the, the shock on their faces as I would I would do that particularly with older colleagues um <laughs> I can just imagine <laughs> it was terrible and I was I was walking around the canteen at the Philharmonie just <laughs> Oh hi, I'm I'm Matthew. Uh, you're you're Stefan, are you? You know, and just the you know the young Australian in me, where you know I've been playing with Sydney Symphony, where even as a a young student, it felt kind of equal. I mean, of course, you're aware of the subtleties of 
social and professional hierarchy, but not in the cafeteria so much. You, so that was a real shock. I really had to learn that sense of just kind of placing yourself in that social jigsaw. Mm, that yeah, there are many instances like that. It took me a long time. And it's so inexplicable as well. After the academy, you took up the orchestral position in Denmark, but then you returned to Berlin, and you were only here for a while. You did your concert exam, and you then joined Ensemble Modern, which is certainly one of the world's most prestigious contemporary music ensembles. Uh, Actually, one of the founding members of that group was the Brisbane musician Kathy Milliken, of course, who's also been a guest on the podcast. How was it going across and performing a very different type of music? Well, I'd done the um, Australian National Academy of Music course with Kathy Milliken and Dietmar Wiesner. Mm. Um, probably just, actually, probably only two years before that in Australia, I think 99. Yeah. And after I quit in Denmark and I came to do the concert examen with Esko Leiner in Berlin. And yeah, it's basically like a soloist's diploma. And um, so I came back to do that. But of course, I needed some money to live off. And I was doing things like um, Ensemble Oriol, the occasional work with Berlin Philharmonic. And then it was incredible. Kathy, well, the Ensemble Modern called up. I'm not sure if it was Kathy or Dietmar. But I think they'd, they'd recommended me. They, would, they needed a new bass player. And after doing Carry On Academy and then joining Danish Radio and leaving it, I kind of felt I didn't want to do orchestral music anymore. Wow. Which as a bass player, you know, kind of really closes, <laughs> closes most of the doors, you know. Um, and then when Kathy called, or the Ensemble Dan called, um, I just couldn't believe my luck. And so I went and did some work with them. I can't remember what the first gig was, and I just loved it. I loved the atmosphere. I loved this feeling of playing music, which was current, um, and also which felt... I mean, this is just the first week I did it, which felt more connected to a, a wider artistic spectrum. And then they said there was an audition, and... Yeah, I didn't think twice. I, I just agreed to do the audition and and got it. And um, I loved it. Three years there, it was, it was very intense. But just to go back a little bit, I've done quite a lot of contemporary music in Australia. Okay. You asked before about the education in Australia, and I think, you know, it's funny. Naively, I didn't think of contemporary music as a separate category I just thought of music as music really sounds healthy to me yeah mm. you know it's different in Germany it's really more you're really everything's more in shoeboxes there's the people that do the modern music there's the people that do the early music the people that do the romantic music but in Australia I didn't feel like that because you had things like you know the Elysian Ensemble which were members of the Sydney Symphony you had Synergy percussion group I was involved with quite a lot of contemporary music not only through National Academy also I think because most of the a lot of the Sydney Symphony work I did were the um, contemporary music programs maybe because someone didn't want to do it I don't know <laughs> but um, I loved it and also the education I had in Sydney in, in Canberra and Sydney focused a lot on contemporary music it was great, you know. We like a Canberra music, a Canberra school of music, felt very alive there. The contemporary music education, 
So when I did Ensemble Dinner, it didn't feel to me like such a, a deviation. It just felt like, well, this is great. Playing chamber music, music written now, or or 100 years ago, we you know did everything from Schoenberg to Lachenmann. Yeah, also the way the group works. One of the really interesting things about the Ensemble Moderne, of course, is the fact that there's never been one artistic director. They've always worked with lots of different people. And a lot of the decisions that are made in that group are made by the members themselves. Decisions about the music they're going to play, who's going to come and lead various projects. And what sort of an influence does that have on the members of the group and the way you perform music? Yeah, I think that um, self-governing aspect really influences the playing. Mm. And it does in my orchestra as well. You know, the feeling of, you know, you've just arrived in Taiwan the night before and you have to get up and play and maybe you've barely slept and you're not feeling great. But that feeling that the performance and your livelihood depends on you giving everything you have. It's a very different feeling than playing in a, um entirely state-run orchestra where you might just be tempted to moan about the conditions. Mm. When it really depends on what you give it, it it's, it's a very different thing. We'd work in you know, some modern sometimes 10 till 9 in a heat wave and then go on tour after that. Grueling schedules sometimes. Mm. But our livelihoods depended on us giving 100%, and I loved that. And I think that aspect is very similar to Berlin for where people are really giving 100%. Um, and if you don't, well, ultimately it's you that's going to suffer. Yeah. Because maybe you're not booked again, another less touring, less recording. But the energy in the group, I love that. You'd feel like a rock star sometimes, <laughs> you know, just... I really loved that. I, I really loved Ensemble Modern. And I, my wife, I met my wife there, Susan Knight. Right. She was the violist. But then when we had our first child, we realized it'd be very difficult to maintain life in Ensemble Modern with family. It's a lot of touring. ask musicians about their auditions um, I think non-musicians don't realise the gruelling experience auditions can be how was yours when you were getting your job at the Berlin Phil well I'd done two auditions already before I did the third successful audition one when I was mm, between yeah just before Ensemble Modern and then one during Ensemble Modern. And then I left Ensemble Modern to join. I played for the Radio Symphony Berlin and then Deutsche Symphony. And I was, I'd actually been playing with London Symphony a little bit and there was a job free there. And I had a slight, I had a strong feeling that I was ready to leave Berlin actually. Um, for various reasons I think also it's quite tough being an orchestral musician living under the shadow of the Berlin Philharmonic mm. it's my own little ego found that tough to deal with mm. I think it's difficult if you've played in the Korean Academy 
to play elsewhere not to diminish the quality of the other orchestras but of course there is something special about Berlin Philharmonic so when this last audition came about I knew there was I wasn't going to do any tricks of I'm doing it for the experience or I'll see how it goes or any of this stuff um, don't want something too much all the things you're supposed to do to calm yourself down no I wanted it and I knew I I wanted to get it I didn't think necessarily that I would I didn't think so much about that but I was absolutely certain that I wanted to give it everything I had um so six months before the audition, I started preparing for it, um, basically on a schedule, hours a day. And I kind of had a, a loose map of where I wanted to be in the six months leading up to it. So that the two months before the audition, I was more or less running it through every day or every two days. And then getting feedback and then working on it again. Um, so I did dozens of run-throughs for friends, colleagues, students. I even played to a room full of three-year-olds once. <laughs> that was the toughest. The ultimate, yes. Yeah, because to, to maintain their attention is, is tricky. Um, played for teddy bears, recorded myself a lot. Really, just any any object or person that was willing to hang around long enough to hear the run through so by the time of the audition the, I mean the actual moment of course before I was feeling sick and nervous but the actual audition it it felt like flying I felt so free and it felt like playing a concert to a room full of great musicians in the most one of the most beautiful acoustics in the world and it was almost out of body experience. I was so prepared that in a way, I, when I look back, I remember, I, I see myself almost above seeing myself playing and just not, not interfering. That level of preparation was really what, what did it. Berlin Phil have this wonderful project where they ask various people, performers, musicians from the group to actually select a couple of highlights for them in their time working with the ensemble. And I noticed that you chose the St. Matthew Passion. That was such an unusual production, wasn't it, in many ways, because it combined type of dance, of course, with the oratorio when it was all under the direction of Sir Simon Rattle, but also uh, you had... A, theatre direction there as well from Peter Sellers right it was um, what did Peter Sellers call it a ritualisation so it wasn't really dancing but there were there was kind of movement physical interaction between the choir and soloists um, not just movement but also creating kind of scenes almost based entirely on um, religious paintings so that at any moment you could 
you know take a photo of the of the scene and that was one of those totally surprising events i think we started rehearsing it in salzburg and i didn't know anything about what was really going on i knew there was going to be some kind of staging element uh, i'd played matthew passion once before in a very traditional way and this just to see it open out at the beginning i didn't really know what was going on and then by a week in just like this is something unbelievable and then just to see the audience audience's reaction and colleagues reaction and my wife's um just everyone in tears i mean of course the music can do that anyway but this just pushed it home You worked with uh, Simon Rattle, of course, for must be for around 10 years now. And the orchestra's moved into a new period with Petrenko. How has this changed, the orchestra, and, and how are you feeling about the Petrenko period? Well, the Petrenko period has been, unfortunately, interrupted a lot. It has indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's funny because it's... We were supposed to go on tour around the... Europe, the States, Japan, and with big repertoire, you know, I was already feeling exhausted just looking at the schedule for May and June, Marla 6, Marla 4, other, you know, big things, and to think, God, it's going to be heavy. And then in the end, to be doing basically chamber music with him, incredible. course we, we have to talk about this and what's actually happened to everybody since the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020 how has that actually changed you and what sort of an effect has it had on your profession when suddenly there were no concerts no rehearsals actually all of the daily routines of a professional musician were suddenly cancelled I think for a lot of us a few weeks in you start to almost doubt if you can do it anymore you crave it but the idea there's a little bit like after a long summer holiday the idea that you're going to get up and play as flawlessly as possible on your instrument for a few thousand people seems so foreign particularly when you're still um enjoying grilled octopus on a beach in croatia you know the idea can seem very far away but also during during lockdown. And it was so unsure, we didn't know when we'd have to play again. Mm. And actually, before the 1st of May concert, I'd, I'd, I'd stopped practicing. I almost had the feeling, well, I don't know when we'll ever play again. I'm going to concentrate on other things for the moment. And then suddenly there was this announcement. So I had about a week to um, learn how to play the bass again. <laughs> yep. That was stressful. And... Um, yeah, that was that was quite tough to have, suddenly have to do it again. And the first moments playing, producing sound with other people, it was nerve-wracking. But then it, 
You know, it's like riding a bike, isn't it? You get yes. used to it. actually met for the first time when you were premiering a new work by Peter Oeftus, who actually wrote a bass concerto especially for you. What's it like performing a new work like this? What aspects are important for the piece to be good for the double bass? I mean, to be honest, this when this came about... Um it was Peter Riegelbauer from the Berlin Philharmonic. He's also the um, manager of the Karen Academy. He commissioned it. And when he mentioned it to me, I, I was just over the moon because I've, ah. I've always loved Erdwesch's music. Um, and to be honest, just, just the fact that Peter Erdwesch was going to write a bass concerto, whether it was for me or not, was an exciting proposition. I actually haven't had that much experience with pieces being written for me right very very minimal but what i was looking for in this what well what i'd hoped to find and did find was a um exploration of the sonic and melodic possibilities of the double bass without too much noise Mm. a lot of composers look first to the extended techniques and I get a bit bored of only extended techniques because it's not why I fell in love with the bass mm. to stick a number plate in the fingerboard. You know, I want to... And Erdwesch's music really... He's only interested in what actually sounds. You know, if there was a difficult harmonic which I couldn't make speak, maybe someone else could do it better. He said, oh, no, let's do a different one. He's always interested in the true resonance and sonority of the bass. Uh, which I thought was just fantastic. Um, and some wonderful melodic lines, the whole register from bottom to the extreme heights. And um, knowledge of the instrument, but not so much where it's just exploiting um, techniques for the sake of it. few more specific things about that instrument of yours the double bass i think most of us are aware of the remarkable role the bass plays in music the rhythmic responsibility of the bass section the harmonic foundation but you also talk about the role of the bass in romantic repertoire that and has an incredibly important job uh, melodically in the music i've never thought about it before but actually that's quite a crucial part in the bass repertoire right yeah, particularly um, you know when you're playing Brahms, the the counterpoint where you're supporting the melody, but you're supporting the melody with another melody, mm. and this is wow. to shape them with the integrity, not not overdoing it, but to to shape a baseline with the integrity of a of a melody. I think it's one of the most important things, and what really sets bass players apart, actually. If you can, well, I mean, I think it's also on the on the other way around. 
you know, when you hear a violinist who's not aware of the the bass, the harmonic function, you, you feel that. But the ones that are really in touch with the inner workings or lower workings um, instantly makes more sense. And a bass player that thinks of the bass line more than one-dimensionally is definitely a, a better bass player. teaching these days so much experience behind you now Sydney Denmark Ensemble Modern and of course now principal of one of the world's finest orchestras has your teaching evolved with all of this behind you I think my own teaching I wouldn't even necessarily call it teaching it's I was finding my way in the dark for a long time also because I've thought a lot about technique and I've worked very hard on technique and worked out how to do things my way when I started teaching I think I was I felt what you do as a teacher is explain and you say how something is done and recently a student said to me he was watching a lesson that I was teaching he said oh yeah you always told me to lead from the elbow whereas now I wouldn't lead the shift from the elbow I think I would lead it more from the finger or or not really think about it. But I think I felt the pressure then to be more pedagogically proficient, which I think made me instantly less pedagogically proficient because I was saying things in a way that I actually hadn't thought about them myself. Um, I've learned an enormous amount about playing just from teaching. But now I... I think I don't get panicked as much if I can't answer something. I'll explain that there are many ways to access things, um, access um, how to find certain techniques. Because I don't think everything works for everybody. Mm. You can tell one person they have to have their fingers arched, but it doesn't work for them. And you have to work with that. With the individual. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, I think maybe that's also the frustration that as a music teacher, you, I really am only working with the individual and have my experience and I can basically bring what I know about playing and music. But I can't force them to play in the same way, mm. particularly not physically. Um, it's incredible just in the profession how everyone does it differently and makes it work. So why should you expect as a teacher that everyone should do it your way? I'd like to take us back to Australia now. What sort of a connection do you maintain with what I call the Big Island? I feel very far away from it, to be honest. Um, I don't follow much of what's going on. Um, 
I'll only know there's a new prime minister when people start complaining about the new prime minister because <laughs> I can't keep up with the new prime ministers. There have been so many. I have this danger the longer I'm away from Australia. I, I do need to go back often. I haven't been for a couple of years now, actually. Um, the danger is the longer I'm away from Australia, the more I ideal I idealize the place or create a kind of fiction about it. You know, start when it gets cold in November, I start to think, oh, I really miss my um, apartment looking over Bondi Beach and then I realise I, I don't have an apartment looking over Bondi Beach <laughs> um, and I started to imagine this life that I never had and would never have there um, thinking about how I could go surfing every day and I realised I didn't know how to surf um, so it is dangerous I, I idealise it also I've done most of my adult life I've spent most of it here I left when I was I don't know, 21, 22. And I didn't have to deal with, well, I didn't have to deal with very much with taxation or kindergartens or schools or mortgages or all these kind of grown-up things. I did that all here. And whenever I have problems here with that stuff, I, I blame it on Germany. <laughs> but I never did it there, so I actually have nothing to compare it to. So I do tend to I- idealise it. My brother lived here for a few years with his family, but now he's moved back to Sydney. And whilst they're very happy, I'm secretly delighted when they say how much they miss it here. Mm. It's you have a down, you have a bad day here, and it's easy to think that everything's better there. So it's 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 complicated. I do love the people so much, and you know many of my best friends here are actually Australian, mm. and. When I'm there, and I don't know if you know the feeling, but after about a week, there's something that relaxes inside you. It's like the language and the rules of the the, the social interaction, the way you, yeah, just communicate with people on a daily level. And there is something that clicks again. Although when I look back when I was younger, I felt um, like Australia was too rough and macho Mm. you know I went to for a little while pretty rough rugby oriented all boys Catholic school Mm. Um, and then I certainly had the idea that Australia was actually pretty pretty violent Mm. place but now I just think back of all my musician friends (laughs) you know so it's complicated yeah of course these major issues that Australia is facing we of course number one is the growing awareness of the mistreatment of the indigenous people but also not really taking responsibility for the various environmental issues that the country is facing the world's facing actually well these these um particularly the the way we've treated indigenous people I come up probably not just for me for many people very strongly after the death of George Floyd mm. where I think a lot of people reflected on their own privilege or prejudice um, in, a, in a deeper way um, in a way that isn't where you think well I'm not, I'm not racist everything's fine but to realise it goes so much deeper than that um, I don't know what the solution is, but I certain I I really I can really see how poorly we've dealt with the situation. Um, and in terms of environment, I'm, I'm I'm getting scared. Recently, I've had friends I've I've no, I know who um, deny climate change altogether. Oh, yeah. So I don't That's know. Quite a dreadful feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know if. During the lockdown, kind of, I think a lot of people spent more time on the internet, for better or for worse. 
and I've read stories in the in newspapers about this, but a lot of people getting a bit more conspiracy theory-ish, major distrust in mass media to the point where they're getting their information from loons on YouTube and mm. Twitter. And I've spoken to a few friends about this. I've known other people who are suddenly saying things that just like, that's, but that's not who you are. Where, where is all this coming from? So, I don't know, in Australia, I know Australia has a terrible track record with the environment, but I, I'm also aware that it's bubbling away everywhere now. Mm. And to see the protests here recently yeah. against the treatment of corona um, policy, to see the kind of growing resentment against everything we've been reading mm. that the planet isn't really suffering that um, there isn't really racism it's just a lie sold to us by the left media and all these kind of things and people marching in the streets with it, that really disturbs me mm. and then you think well it's just one friend with some words great guy but then you wonder how I don't know where the combination of all this is leading That that terrifies me actually particularly when it's educated people going down these down these routes come to the moment in the interview now where I like to ask my interview partners to finish two sentences and the first one of those sentences is when I think of Australia I think of Bondi Beach <laughs> well that took a long time <laughs> is it that good do you miss it um, it's it's not just miss it it's I've you know created it as my own little personal heaven in my in my head is where I'll go to if not die at least retire <laughs> at least retire um, are you a surfer? no but I'd like to learn mm. I'm a body surfer mm. it's just what I associate with it and also in, in the years when I was whenever I go back one of the greatest things I ever did was um, playing with Berlin Philharmonic in Sydney oh, we wow. did Marla One there yeah. and before that I went for a swim at Bondi Beach <laughs> I went directly to the hall and to still, you know, have the smell of the sea on you as you were playing a Mahler symphony. I mean, for me, that's that's a dream. Yeah. And the second one of those sentences is, I know I'm an Australian when? Hmm, that's tricky. <laughs> but I guess I know I'm Australian really when I'm around other Australians. <laughs> That's really it. You know, I remember when the discussion about the preamble for the constitution in Australia, and I think there was a lot of talk about the Australian identity. I remember the journalist Paul Lynham yeah. said something like, um, what, what do you mean, what the, the Australian identity? I mean, who's ever woken up and thought, well, today I feel particularly Bulgarian? <laughs> so I think it is that feeling. I never wake up and feel Australian, but when I'm around other Australians, and sometimes it takes a couple hours to realise why I feel so good and at home, it's, I realise it's being in their company. It's, it's unique. It's not just the language, yeah. Principal bass of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, former Canberra resident, Matthew McDonald speaking to me there. 
If you're curious to find out more about Matthew's performances, then visit the Tall Poppies website, where you'll find an array of links to his work. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it via social media or by emailing the link to friends and family. And don't forget to visit our website for more information about what I do, tall-poppies.com, or drop me an email at info tall-poppies.com. It's been nice to have you with me today. Until next time, stay safe. This is Brendan O'Shea saying goodbye from Berlin. Music